My name is Mike Berry, one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. If you don't know me, it's my privilege to bring the Word of God this morning. Pastor Milton is out of town with his um, family. If you could open up to Luke chapter 10, that's where we'll be uh, getting our text from this morning. Uh, you can also see it on the the same thing where you were had the song lyrics, the text is there, and also the the notes. Uh, before we get into the message, though, we want we've got a um, a newborn announcement, and so we have Elijah Cooper Bobo was born to Rayshawn and Michelle on July thirteenth, weighing in at seven pounds four ounces, nineteen inches long. So praise the Lord for this new addition to our family and to the Bobo family. And so let's be uh, praying for Rayshawn, Michelle, their family, and, and Elijah. Very exciting. Speaking of newborns, uh, what does an infant have in common with a man who has literally wrecked his life, a man who was unconscious and left for dead? Sounds like a strange transition. We'll ask our brother Brian Q here. Uh, Brian Q, those of you guys who know Brian or have met him, was born August 8th, 1961 in Monterey Park. So his 60th birthday is coming up, right? Pretty soon, here in a few days. When his mom brought him home from the hospital, Brian couldn't do a whole lot. Uh, He couldn't feed himself, couldn't bathe himself. His mom had to do everything for him. He made no economic contribution to the household other than a tax write-off. And then Brian grew up and got really smart, right? Really wise. Went to Norco High School but didn't graduate. But he was smart. Uh, he is really good looking too. I don't know if you guys have seen any pictures of Brian when he was younger, but he was a good looking rocker who liked to party and ride his motorcycle without a helmet. And that's where Brian's life began. Uh, that's back where he started completely dependent upon others to do for him what he could not do for himself. Christ came to Brian and revealed himself to him, bandaged up his wounds, as it were, and put him in this church. I've actually known Brian longer than I've known my wife. Uh, We go back uh, to the 80s. And... uh, You know, Christ has done for Brian what he could not do for himself. And this body has participated in that trauma care, so to speak, as you have ministered to Brian over the years. And we rejoice in the ways this body has been part of Team Brian, right? And um, by the way, there's always room for one more. So if you want to join Team Brian, you can come talk to Alan or JJ. Um. But Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I want to propose to you that we are all infants, and we are all disabled. 
<clears throat> we've been disabled by the world. We've been disabled by Satan, by our own sin nature and sinful choices. Uh, but there is good news. <clears throat> Christ did not come for the healthy. He came um, for the sick. Um, Christ didn't come for those who think they are wise and prudent. He came for infants. And then Christ puts us all together and says, take care of one another. And when you travel down the road of life, I want you to see what I saw in you. Someone who was bleeding out on the side of the road. Um, Jesus says, let me care for you so that you can care for others who are bleeding out on the side of the road. In this section of scripture um, that has properly been called the Good Samaritan, um, if you take time to read and, and pray through this passage, what you'll see is that you've got Jesus really put on trial. Jesus is tried by a wise expert in the law. However, the Lord uses the lawyer's own terms to expose his shallow reading of the law. And then he riddles out the children's way to inherit uh, eternal life. And I, I really think there's a lot that we can gain from this passage, especially if we read it in its uh, larger context. And so um, I want to I read some of the, the verses that come beforehand, and then we're going to really hone in on verses uh, 25 to 37 in particular. But read with me starting in verse 20. Um, and again, you can read this on your, your tablet or, or your, your regular Bible. Um, verse 20 says this, However, don't... This is Jesus speaking to the, the 70 that he had sent out earlier in the chapter. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's what I want you to get excited about. Not so much about these wonderful accomplishments that you're seeing. I want you to rejoice that something has happened for you that you couldn't do for yourself. And that is your names have been written by someone else in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So what does Jesus get excited about? He said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. You've hidden certain things from people that think they're wise and prudent, but you've revealed things to infants who could not do anything for themselves. Verse 22 all things have been entrusted to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Um, so Jesus says that basically it's within his prerogatives and the Father's prerogative to reveal things to people that would not know anything otherwise unless it had been revealed to them by the Father and the Son. Then, verse 23, turning to his disciples, he says privately, the eyes that see the things you see are blessed, are happy, happy eyes that get to see 
what you see. And then he takes a turn at verse 24. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see uh, what you see, uh, but didn't see them. Um, So then he says, uh, didn't see them to hear the things that you hear and didn't hear them. So there were people that had prophesied and spoken of Christ, Elijah, David, and they didn't get to see the fulfillment these disciples were now seeing. Um, And so Jesus kind of, this is the the context that really sets up um, our parable of the good Samaritan, so to speak, what we're actually calling the compassionate Samaritan this morning. And so let's look at basically four sections, starting in verse 25. I'm going to I'm going to kind of draw us through four uh, movements in this text, all coming out of this previous context where Jesus is comparing the wise and prudent with infants and really rejoicing is what it, what is being revealed to the infants. Does this make sense so far? That's our, our context, our setup. So let's, let's look at the first section. And uh, from here, I'll read kind of as we're making the points. Number one, a wise expert in the law puts the teacher to the test. This is verse 25. So you get a quote-unquote wise expert in the law comes to put Jesus to the test. Let's read verse 25. Just then, an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That seems like a good, legitimate question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a question many Jews would be asking at that time. It's a question we should ask. How do we inherit eternal life? Notice how uh, Luke lays this out for us. He says, just then. Some of your translations say, and behold. Unfortunately, some of your translations don't have those Greek words in there, which is a little unfortunate because Luke, when he says, and behold, Um, That is always, he's always connecting what's happening to what just came beforehand. So for instance, um, like over in the passage dealing with Zacchaeus 19 verse 2, or you could write down 14 verse 2 or 13 verse 11, there's this and behold that always connects what's coming with what immediately proceeds. This is different, for instance, from what you see in verse 38 where Luke says, now it happened or now it came to pass. Whenever he says now it happened or now it came to pass, he's moving the story forward, arranging the material as gospels do, kind of like movies where there's kind of a basic flow, but sometimes the gospel writer will flash back or put things in different places for theological emphasis. But when he says and behold, or in our translation, just then, this is connected to what immediately precedes So the lawyer's uh, question arises from what Jesus has just said about infants, about wise and prudent, about the blessedness of eyes being opened, and so on. Um, So uh, the lawyer is responding to some things that probably he finds disconcerting, and and he's called an expert in the law um, or a lawyer. This is someone who is basically a, a, a scripture lawyer, so to speak. In fact, we have an example of this kind of person in the Old Testament. Ezra would be this kind of person. He's a lawyer, probably like a subset of the scribes. Scribes 
were uh, very knowledgeable of the whole law and the word of God, and lawyers are probably a subset of that with some special expertise um, that this this lawyer has. And Jesus, we've had run-ins with scribes and lawyers before this. Back in chapter 5, for instance, verse 30, uh, and their scribes and Pharisees complained against the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Um, why are you eating with these sinners? And by the way, over in the Gospel of John, the Pharisees further this description, and they call Jesus himself a Samaritan. You want to call somebody a really bad name? It's not just a tax collector, not just a sinner, not just a Gentile. You call them a Samaritan, and that is the worst of the worst to call a Jew a Samaritan. Verse 31, this is back in chapter 5, Luke 5. Jesus answered and said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So those of you that obviously read the scriptures, you know there's constant run-ins with the religious establishment, scribes, lawyers, Pharisees, whatnot. Fast forward to Luke chapter 11, and you get a little bit of a flavor of what the interaction between Christ and lawyers normally are. So look at 11 uh, verse 45, for instance. This is right after Jesus has been given his woes to the Pharisees. He says, then one of the lawyers, or Luke says, then one of the lawyers answered and said to Jesus, teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. So does Jesus soften his approach on the lawyer? No, verse 46. Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You lawyers are putting burdens on people that should not be there. Verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You're taking knowledge away. There's there's a key to knowledge, and you're taking that away. Um, and then he goes on to say, and then in verse 53, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. And so this context on both sides of chapter 10 should inform our idea of what this lawyer is likely up to, an expert in the law comes, and what does the text say? He stood up to test him. He stands up. He had been seated. He heard what Jesus had just pronounced. Now he stands up to test him. By the way, the word test here is the same word that's used in Luke 4, um, where Jesus went out into the wilderness to be tested of the devil. It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 10.9 when Paul says, do not, test, do not be like those who tested Christ in the wilderness and serpents destroyed them. This is a strong word. This is like hypertest. Um, so this lawyer stands up to hypertest. The one has revealed himself to little unenlightened children. Um, and so he tempts him as the devil did. And then he says, the lawyer says, Teacher, um, what must I do? To inherit eternal life? That's the question. And the verb tense here of do, what is the, what's the one thing I can do that I can do to inherit eternal life? And while the Jewish lawyer may have a certain Jewish concept of what eternal life is, 
we know from the previous context that how Jesus thinks of eternal life is those who have their names written in heaven, right? Rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. And Jesus rejoices that things have been revealed to infants, right? So that is our wise expert in the law. That's our first section. And so let's look at a, a second section that's leading us towards the compassionate Samaritan story, and that is Jesus engages the lawyer on his own terms. <clears throat> Jesus engages the lawyer on his own terms. Let's read verse 26 to 28. Here he lets the lawyer answer his own question according to his own understanding. Verse 26, what is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. So let's, let's think about what Jesus has just done here. He says, what is written in the law? This guy's a lawyer. Let's point him back to the law. You're the expert. Jesus doesn't try to answer his question directly. He just asks the lawyer, who's the expert, what is the answer? What is your reading? How do you, what's your hermeneutic? How do you go back and interpret the law? The legal expert responds with the right answer. This is what a Jew would recite every morning and evening, the Shema, and then they would also um, recite Leviticus 19, 18, about loving your neighbors yourself. And notice that what a Jew would recite every morning, and it could become somewhat humdrum if they're not thinking about it, it starts with love. What is it that we're to do? We are to love. That's the first thing. Love who? Love the Lord, Yahweh, covenant language. Love this one who is covenanted to love you. And love the Lord, not just any God, but your God, that you own him. Love the Lord your God, not just with part of yourself, but with all of your heart, all of your inner life, not necessarily just your emotion, all of your soul, all of your conscious being and personality, all of your strength, put all of your physicality into it with all of your mind, every thought, love your God. That's the first table of the law. And your neighbor is yourself. That's the second table of your law. Notice, love your neighbor just like you love yourself. The implication is we all love ourselves. We need to love our neighbor in the same way that we love ourselves. So, verse 28, Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The lawyers ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what's your reading of the law? He gives them the reading of the law. He says, do that. By the way, this is present tense. Do that continuously. Continually love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself continuously, every moment, every day, all the time without exception. That's our second section leading up to the compassionate Samaritan. So thirdly, we've seen that the wise man or the wise expert in the law puts Jesus to the test. Jesus turns the tables, answers him on his own terms. Third, the legal expert tries to justify himself by circumscribing the do's, 
of the law. He wants to draw a small circle around the dues of the law to make the law attainable. That's what legalism always does. Legalism lays out what we need to do to inherit eternal life, and then it tries to draw a very small circle so that we can say we did it, and then we can then proclaim we did it. And that's exactly what our lawyer does. Verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So let's break this down. Wanting to justify himself gives the reason for the next question. <clears throat> he wants to justify <clears throat> himself. This word justify is used all over the, the book of Luke, by Luke. In fact, back in chapter 7, um, when the people heard Jesus, even the tax collectors justified God when sinners start to sense their forgiveness of sins, what they do is they justify God. When you have the Pharisee and the tax collector praying, it's the tax collector that goes down justified. Um, but this guy wants to justify himself. He's heard Christ's answer. He's not satisfied, probably senses how he's being painted into a corner by Christ's questions. And now he wants to justify himself. <clears throat> which is kind of interesting. He, the question he asks is, who is my neighbor? Um, when you answer a proud man's question, what do you get in response? Another question. <laughs> uh, you know, when you're out, I don't know if you have this experience when you're, when you're sharing the gospel with friends and family and so on, and when you come across someone who really doesn't want an answer, they just ask another question, and you never get to anything satisfactory. And so this guy asks another question. Matthew Henry says, many ask good questions with a design rather to justify themselves than to inform themselves, rather proudly to show what is good in them than humbly to see what is bad in them. And that seems to be what the lawyer is doing here. He asks, notice what he doesn't ask. <clears throat> what does he not ask here? He doesn't ask, how can I love the Lord my God with all of my heart, mind, and soul and strength. He doesn't even bring that up. Implication, I've got that nailed. Okay, the, the, that tablet of the law, doing good. Okay, let's talk about the neighbor thing because there is a theological debate amongst us about what a neighbor really is. Um, in asking the question, who is my neighbor, let's think about what he's asking. Essentially, he's asking, who are the non-neighbors? Who can I not love as myself and still fulfill the law? You know, Jews um, would say that every Jew was their neighbor, but a Gentile was not a neighbor. If a Gentile was drowning, uh, you were under no obligation to save him. And Samaritans were the worst. They were worse than just average Gentiles. We'll talk about why later. Um, but Jesus comes along, and earlier in Luke's gospel, he says in chapter 6, that Jesus says, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. And he says, Rejoice in that day, and leap. You should be excited when uh, you're hated. And I tell you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. So Jesus is always flipping the, tails, the, the, the tables on the script. 
And, um, and so the lawyer wants to draw a small circle, and what we're going to see is Jesus is going to really draw the circle around much bigger, which brings us to our fourth section. And uh, this is where we're going to spend. Don't get too excited that I'm about ready to end. We're, we, are, uh, we are now just getting into the, the meat here. Number four, um, Jesus exposes the lawyer's shallow reading of the law and thus riddles out the children's way to inherit eternal life. This is where everything's been leading, is Jesus now exposes this shallow reading of the law, uh, his circumscribing of the dues, and he's going to riddle things out for the lawyer, and by implication, show how we can really inherit eternal life. Let's read it together. We're going to read this at length now, verse 30 down to the 37. Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, record screech, on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Here's a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. So let's consider what Jesus has just done. This is masterful. Jesus, verse 30, took up the question and said, let's stop right there for a section because what Jesus is going to do is Jesus tells a story, a parable, um, which was a significant method that he used in his teaching ministry. And so I want to take a little excursus and talk about parables and how we should interpret parables. Is that fair? You guys with me? Everybody say, yeah, I'm with you. I need to know that you guys are excited. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's great. That's cool. I need to be more exciting. That's what I need to do. Um, so he says, um, so basically, why did Jesus use parables? That's, that's a, a legitimate question. Why is he choosing to use a parable right here? If you, you can look at this if you want or just listen. But in chapter 8 of the same gospel, Luke tells us, uh, then his disciples asked Jesus saying, why, what does this parable mean? We're talking about the parable of the four soils. And he said, to you, it has been given to know the mysteries of God. So it's been revealed to you to know things of God's reign, the mysteries of God's reign. But to the rest, it is given in parables. Why? That seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. That is just an odd description. And, and he's quoting Isaiah. And so both from Isaiah and the context here, basically what Jesus is saying is, I'm revealing things to you. But to the people that think they see and think they hear, in other words, people that think they're wise and prudent, I'm giving them riddles 
And, but if people come to me like, like you're coming to me, they understand they're an infant. They understand that they're disabled. I just speak plainly to those people, and I even tell them uh, most of the time what the parables mean. And then Jesus, in that context, goes on to explain the parable. And so, so here's, that's kind of like why Jesus says he's uh, using parables. And let me just throw out some things that you could write down if you wish. The, some of the principles of understanding Christ's parables. One is Jesus spoke more straightforward to the infants, children, disciples um, than he would to the wise and the prudent. Does that make sense? Uh, the wise and the prudent get parables many times uninterpreted, but the children get straightforward explanations. Uh, but even then, the disciples slash infants don't always understand, right? When In chapter 9, when Jesus, uh, he says to them, the disciples in, in verse 44, let these words sink down into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Is that a parable? No, the Son of Man is going to die, right? Um, but they did not understand. It was hidden from them, the text says. And that's an interesting study in the book of Luke to even follow the word hidden in, in, in when things are revealed. And so just because a person's an infant or little child doesn't mean they always understand immediately what Jesus is saying. But what happens is Jesus normally does speak straightforward to the infants and the children, right? Um, and then they start debating who's greatest. And so Jesus has to do an object lesson. He puts a child in their midst and he gives them the lesson of the little child trying to encourage them. So all this to say that when Jesus speaks in parables, it's normally it's riddle-like for the proud and, and he's straightforward for the infants. Um, so Jesus, for instance, Jesus preaches a clear gospel message to Nicodemus, even though he comes underneath the cloak of dark. Remember when Nicodemus shows up, Jesus just preaches the gospel. I mean, he does talk about being born again, and Nicodemus doesn't understand that, but that's where John 3.16 is, right? Nicodemus is part of the religious establishment, but he comes saying, no one can do the things unless he comes, you know, the things you're doing, you're from God. And so Jesus gives him the straight scoop. Um, this is what makes John MacArthur say that parables are like riddles, uh, you need a key to unravel them. Part of the key, we'll talk about here in a moment, is determining whether you're coming as a child or whether you're coming as a proud, wise person. Fortunately, Jesus says, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Jesus isn't just trying to mess with people's heads for the sake of messing with people's heads. He wants them to know the mystery. So a second principle is that he wants his followers to understand them. And often, he, he will just very simply explain the parable. Other times, um, we need to take our understanding of the theme of Christ's parables from other parables to unlock the story. We look at his pattern in other parables, and that helps us unlock some of these parables like this one that doesn't exactly get explained for us. So a third principle would be, when we come across a parable like the Good Samaritan, we should... And I just want you to kind of listen to this, because if you try to take all these notes, you probably get frustrated. Just kind of listen to where I'm going here. When we hear parables like the Good Samaritan, we need to first determine whether Christ is talking to a wise person or an infant. Is he talking to someone who thinks they're wise right now or an infant? You tell me. A wise person. Okay. Is the intended audience self-righteous or bankrupt? How would you answer? Self-righteous. Are they wanting to learn or to test Jesus? test, okay? That gives you a clue on how to interpret the parable that's coming up. Uh, a fourth principle is the parables are normally about salvation in the eternal kingdom of God. This is clearly one of those. 
And Jesus or his father are normally the hero of the story. Like the prodigal son, the hero is the father. In this one, we're going to see who I think the hero is. But it's normally the father or the son. Um, The one Jesus tells the parable to is never to see themselves as the hero or exhorted to be the hero of the story. Let me say that again. When Jesus is telling a parable, he's never trying to get them to see themselves as the hero of the story or to become the hero of the story. They are exhorted to see themselves as the violator, the debtor, or the one in need of healing or forgiveness. That's almost always the way the parables roll. You need to see yourself as the debtor, the violator, the one who needs healing, or the one who needs to be forgiven. Remember, these are stories, okay? Final principle. Many parables follow the law of threes, meaning that somewhere in the parable, because it is a parable and it's a particular type of genre, you're going to find three somewhere in there, like the creditor and two debtors, the father and two sons. In this case, it's three people who see someone on the side of the road. And one of the three is going to be the hero normally. So with these principles in mind, let's consider Jesus' story he delivers to the lawyer. Let's now move through the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So you have a man that we don't see. There's no name given to the man. That's another clue that this is a parable and a story and not just history. It could theoretically have been based on something, but Jesus is telling a story. Um, When he's telling parables, there's no names given to the people. Does that make sense? Like Lazarus and rich man, that's a little little trickier there because that one, he says Lazarus, which makes a lot of people think that's that's an actual historical occurrence because he uses a name. Here, there's no names. He's going down. You always go down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is 3,200 feet above Jericho on this 18-mile trek. It's an infamous road. Even to this day, it's a very treacherous road. It was infamous for robbers. One of the turns is called the Way of Blood. This is talking, we're talking about danger. A person should never be walking this road alone. This guy falls into the hands of robbers, plural. What do they do? They strip him, they beat him up, and they leave him for dead, half dead. Okay, so that's, that sets up the problem. You got a guy bleeding out on the road. If he's just there by himself, he's probably going to die if something doesn't happen. But good news, verse 31, a priest happened just by chance to be going down the road too. He's also going down the road from Jerusalem, perhaps uh, after his duties that he's fulfilled for his, um, you know, his lot to, to do his duties in Jerusalem. A priest would be someone who is a Levite, descendant of Levi, but he has to also be a descendant of Aaron to be a priest. And, um, and uh, we won't get into all the in- inheritance laws of that and stuff, but he's, uh, but he's probably fulfilled his duties. Um, Christ implies by this story that he's without excuse, right? This is a guy who knows the law. He's coming down the road, and just like Jesus has had other debates with the Pharisees, that won't you even help you know, get somebody's ox out of a ditch on the, on, the, on the Sabbath? So you should also help a human being. And so a priest sees a guy who's bleeding out on the side of the road. The assumption is he's Jew, because if he wasn't Jew, Jesus would have told us. So this is a Jewish story up to this point. So he sees a Jew who is a neighbor on the side of the road, but leaves him in the ditch. 
So this, obviously, this sets up a problem is the, you know, a priest who's supposed to be the good guy is not helping a guy who's bleeding out on the side of the road, even though he was obligated to by the law. Even Leviticus 19.34 says that you should love and, and take care of foreigners in the land. He saw him, so it wasn't that he didn't see him. He saw him and passed by on the other side. There was a Jewish tradition that uh, a priest would even be careful about letting his shadow even touch uh, the body of a, a dead person. Uh, the problem is, is this guy's probably fulfilled his duty already, so he's not worried about ritual uncleanness. He's on his way back home to Jericho. He sees him, but his eyes aren't blessed at this point. Verse 32, the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, also saw him pass by on the other side. His eyes aren't open to the need. So, um, and, and a Levite is, is kind of like, a, it, I guess a, an analogy would be like, here we have pastors and deacons. So your, your pastor's kind of like the priest and maybe, you know, a deacon's like a Levite. Levites did a lot of the grunt work around the temple. Um, but verse 33, here's our, our rule of threes, right? A Samaritan on his journey came to him. And again, when you hear the word Samaritan, if we're going to get our minds into this original story, this is record screech time. There is no such thing as a good Samaritan. When we, when we hear the word Samaritan, we just think Samaritan's purse. We think of that little chubby guy on the back of RVs. Uh, you just, it's just you do good things for good people, right? Good Samaritan. Um, but the, good, the Samaritan would ring in the ears like saying the good thief, the good jerk, the good heretic, the good Antifa member, the good ISIS soldier, the good anti-Semite, the good racist, the good Nazi, the good white supremacist. No, we, we, there, there are no good white supremacists. There are no good Nazis. That's the way this would have rung in the ears of the original hearers. Does this make sense? So for, for the Samaritan to show up, and then you, you have to kind of understand why is it that people would view Samaritans this way. Those of you guys that love your Old Testament, like I love the Old Testament, um, basically, I mean, this goes way, way, way back, even to the times of Jeroboam, where you have the Civil War, and Jeroboam is setting up these golden calves, and they're having weird alternative worship, you know, the Festivus for the rest of us, and... and um, and and then you've got Ahab and Jezebel, and then there's these warnings, and Elijah's trying to get everybody to repent. And then finally the Assyrians come in and take them into captivity as promised. But the, uh, the Assyrians have this cross-pollination program to breed the Jews out of existence, right? And so they start taking other people they've conquered, move them into the land, and they start cross-pollinating. And now you don't have any true Jews up in that area. They're now Samaritans. And then when the Jews finally do come back 70 years later by God's providence to try to build the temple, they've got enemies in the land, enemies by like Sanballat. I love that word, Sanballat. If there's an enemy word, there's, that's it right there. And Sanballat is, they're opposing God's people in trying to rebuild their walls and temples, right? 
And then you've got just the history of them coming down and trying to desecrate the Jewish temple with bones of dead people. And then you've got the Jews going up and trying to destroy their temple in Gerizim. The, uh, the Samaritans actually come up with their own Pentateuch called the Samaritan Pentateuch. So they've even got uh, compromised scripture. Uh, it's a mess. We're talking about hundreds of years of hatred, theological heresy, just an absolute mess. In fact, all you got to do is turn back one chapter, the hinge verse, really where the whole book of Luke turns on its hinges is 951, where it says, and now it came to pass when time had come for him to be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So the rest of the book of Luke is Jesus moving towards Jerusalem. He sends his disciples ahead into Samaria to kind of set some things up for him. John and James go in there. And because Jesus' face was set to go to Jerusalem, the Samaritans were like, forget that. Get out of town. You are not welcome here, Jew. Which makes James and John just overflow with compassion, right? No, no, they're like, hey, Lord, you want us to call fire down on, heaven, on these guys just like Elijah did? Uh, no, we'll go to another city, you guys. And so that's the way the disciples themselves feel about Samaritans. That's the way Samaritans feel about Jesus and Jews in general. And so for Jesus to take the Samaritan and basically put him in the role of the good guy, record screech. And when he saw the man, so the Samaritan saw the man, he had compassion. Big problem. Compassion? He's moved in his inward parts. His guts are churning. This is gut-wrenching compassion is what this word refers to. In the verb form, this word is only ever used of Christ or the Father or the father in a parable. It's a word that's used of God himself. Like when Jesus saw the widow at Nain, he had compassion. When the father and the prodigal son saw his son, he had compassion. This is the, the word that is used most frequently in the Old Testament when we think about the Jewish confession of faith. What is the Jewish confession of faith in the Old Testament? Is the Lord passed by and, it's, and by Moses, the Lord, and he pronounces his name, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. That gets repeated all over the Old Testament. And then Jesus picks up the word, and he's having compassion all over the New Testament. What makes matters worse is not only does this Samaritan have compassion, he also goes over and binds up the wounds of this man. Again, Old Testament language all over the place. We see promises of the Lord binding up the wounds of Israel. I'll just give you one, Isaiah 30, 26. And that day the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and, and heals the stroke of their wounds. And this language is all over the Old Testament of, of Yahweh's compassion and his desire to bind up the wounds of his people. And this Samaritan is being described in that way. The word wound, by the way, in our text in verse 34 is the same word that we get our English word, trauma. And so he binds up his trauma. Um, and it's only used one time in the whole New Testament right here. 
And he comes and he pours oil and wine. Oil, wine would be kind of an anesthetic. Oil uh, would, would, would soothe the wound. And he puts him on his own animal. Um, and so he puts him on his animal because this guy could not walk himself, right? He's probably unconscious uh, in Christ's story. And he brings him to an inn. By the way, this is not the holiday inn. This is like a place where you would just bring, you know, you would stay the night with your animals and, and it's not a place of comfort. Uh, there is some evidence that a, an inn at this time would cost maybe one thirty-second of a denarii, uh, which kind of gives us some context for what's happening in the next section. He took care of him, and the next day he took out two denarii, two days' wage, and gave it to the innkeeper, says, take care of him. When I come back, I'm going to reimburse you for whatever you spend. So he puts himself in, in debt to this inn. You know, just whatever you do, I'm going to take care of it. He's just trusting the innkeeper. Uh, Verse 36, now Jesus comes back finally with a question after this extravagance. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Who's the neighbor? There's only one answer that the lawyer can give. The one who showed him mercy. He said, then Jesus says, go and do the same. Go and do the same. So what is Christ's response to the question, who is my neighbor? When, you know, the lawyer starts off with, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, go and do the law. Who is my neighbor? I got the love your Lord your God stuff down, but who's my neighbor? Uh, who can I not love? Christ's response via this parable gives him the answer. Who can I not love and still fulfill the law? No one. Who can I not love? Who can I exclude and still fulfill the law? No one. You cannot exclude a single person regardless of how different they are, how much they hate you, how much you hate them. You must love everyone as much as you love yourself. That's the law. Was this true of Samaritans in general? Could you find a Samaritan like this? I want to suggest that no, you would not find a Samaritan like this. That's the point. That's part of the point. We just see in chapter 9 how the Samaritans treated Jesus and his disciples. Uh, Samaritans had a deserved reputation for being bad people and harboring thieves. But guess what? God loves the whole world indiscriminately. And he loves everyone, even his enemies. And to the lawyer and to us, God says, and you must too. You must love the man on the side of the road, he says to the lawyer. You must love the priest who passes you by. You must love the Levite. You must love the robbers who left you for dead Only a person who loves everyone the way he loves himself can inherit eternal life. That's the message. Look at the extravagance in which the Samaritan goes using not just just kind of leaking out tokenism. We're talking about extravagant, pouring it out, all of his resources, even putting himself in debt to the innkeeper. Only a person who loves everyone 
in the way that he loves himself, can inherit eternal life. I believe that's Christ's point to the lawyer. Big problem, however, at this point. Big problem. Did Christ's own disciples love the Samaritans this way in Luke chapter 9? What's the answer? Nope. Does this mean that they will not inherit eternal life? Very important how you answer that question. Then why does Jesus rejoice in the Holy Spirit over them in verse 21? How can Jesus rejoice over children who have so recently wanted to wipe out their enemies, calling fire down upon them? I want to suggest to you that we are not to see ourselves in this parable as the Samaritan. And there is a long history of tradition of this viewpoint. And I want to quote some folks who argue this. We are not to see ourselves as the Samaritan in the parable inspired to follow his example of neighbor love. Jesus never tells, Reverend Quirk says, Jesus never tells a parable in which he, his hearer is invited to see himself as the good guy. Rather, we are the man who fell among robbers, mugged by Satan in sin, and left not just half dead, but dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus' illustration would offend Jewish listeners striking at the heart of their Jewish patriotism, which was religiously justified. So Jesus comes along and basically sets up this story or what sets up this whole experience is Jesus has been talking about infants who have been revealed uh, that their names are written in heaven and that they shouldn't rejoice over their own works of really actually doing good things for Christ, but they should rejoice that their names are written. And as infants, they really can do nothing for themselves. And, and Jesus then rejoices in the Holy Spirit that God is revealing things to babes rather than to the wise. And the lawyer, the wise one, stands up and says, Au contraire, I have a test for you, Jesus. Here's the test. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do I have to also be an infant? Do I have to come to you and lay down my wisdom and my prudence? Are you saying that I must only come to you as a needy person who needs to just depend upon revelation of the, uh, from the Father from the Son? Au contraire, what must I do? Well, Jesus enters into his world and, and answers him on his own terms. What's the law tell you, teacher? What's the law tell you, lawyer? Well, keep the two tablets of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And if he understands this rightly all the time, and always love your neighbor exactly as you love yourself and never exclude anybody ever from that equation. If the lawyer really understands the implications of the law and the do's that are in this text, he would throw himself at Christ's feet like Nicodemus and say, no one can do the works that you do unless he's from God. Give me the gospel. The lawyer doesn't do that. He's a proud man who hears the answer to his question and follows it up with another question designed to limit the extent of the law so he can exclude people he hates. And Jesus tells him a parable that just will not allow that. And he tells us a parable to get us to really look at the true intent 
If our eyes are open this morning, what is the intent for the children? What is the intent for the disabled? Is Christ come for the, the well or the sick? He's come for the sick. Is he coming for the wise or the children? He's come for the children. And in this parable, and I want to propose to you that in just about all parables, really all parables, the hero is never us. The hero is the father. The hero is the son. You and I must see ourselves as the one on the side of the road who's bleeding out by sin and Satan and the world. And the law comes along and passes you by. The law says, here's what you must do. And passes you by and gives you no ability to do what the law requires. But Christ comes along and he owns your sin, the worst of your sins, takes it upon himself and he comes to you and he takes you and he takes me and he throws us on his own animal as it were and he brings us down to the church and he, he, he takes care of our sins and he turns us over to other wounded sinners and he says, now take care of each other and when I come back, I'm going to pay you all back. Without me, you can do nothing. And he puts us together and he gives us the Holy Spirit. And he says, go out and love one another the way that you love yourself. And you say, Lord, we can't. I know that. That's why I want you to see yourself as a wounded sinner and come together and love each other. You know, Jesus was called a Samaritan in John eight forty eight by the Jewish leadership. And the word compassion is only ever used of the Father in Jesus. And I want to propose to you that this is a story. This is a parable. And it is a parable that hides itself. It's a riddle to some, but it's open to others. And if we will come as infants, if we will come as those who understand that we are just bleeding out on the side of the road with our sins, then this parable can be something that gives us comfort and actually gives us the fuel to go out and love people that are very different from us and even love our enemies in a way that we've been loved. This parable can be used to beat people up and give and heap guilt upon them to go out and do things that you have no power to do. Or this parable can be used in such a way to help us see what our needs are, that we're really the infant. We really, we're totally dependent upon God revealing himself to us through Christ. And as we come to him like Nicodemus in the night, Jesus just opens up his breast to us and says, I'm going to take care of your needs. And then I'm going to give you the ability and power through my grace to go out and love other sinners like you. I believe that the, those are, these are some of the main things that Luke is arguing in the book, in his gospel. So ask yourself, are you wise in your own eyes or an infant? Are you someone who sees themselves as the man on the side of the road? Truth be told, folks, we're all the lawyer. Every one of us. Every one of us is the lawyer. We're all the priest. We all pass people by. We're the Levite. We're the robber. But Christ looks down at you, and he looks down at me, and he sees people that have been beaten to death by their own sin, by Satan, and by the world. And he has compassion on you first. 
Brothers and sisters, you can do nothing for anyone without knowing Christ's compassion upon you first. As pastors, we could get up here every week and beat you up with the law. But unless you know that you are loved by Christ first and foremost, you will have no power. What you'll do is you'll go out and do what so many people are doing today, and you'll beat other people up with self-righteousness. But if you understand where you lie and you get loved by Christ, now we've got motivation to go out and do deeds of righteousness. Not because we're trying to earn some favor before God, but because we've been loved by Christ. So again, as we kind of wrap things up here, do you see yourself like the lawyer, wise and prudent? Are you spiritually healthy, wealthy and wise? then go and do what the Samaritan did. If, if you're sitting here today and you view yourself as healthy, wealthy, and wise, then Jesus would say, well, go and do what the Samaritan did. Just get out there and knock it out. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul all the time and love your neighbors yourself and never exclude anybody and come back and let me know how that works for, out for you. But if you come as a, an infant and as someone who knows their brokenness, and you say, Lord, I, I can't love like that. <clears throat> Jesus comes to you and says, I know. That's why I've loved you this way. And now I want you to take what I'm pouring into you and turn it around to others. You know that person that you has despised you? You know that person that you hate? You know that person that's been mean to you? You know those the, the people that you, that your enemies? <clears throat> you can go out and love them with my power. You know, we've got a, a, a man here, a friend, Brian Q, who, when he was a baby, <clears throat> couldn't do anything for himself. All of us at one point, we were infants, and we made no contribution to our parents whatsoever, other than the, they just loved looking at us, Right? cute little babies. And the Lord wants us to view ourselves in that kind of way first. And really, as we get older, we do all kind of slip into, like we, we start thinking we're pretty smart. We start thinking we're pretty wise. And the Lord has to knock us back. And because he loves us, because he loves his children, he will faithfully knock us back. And, and, and he'll bring things into our life not to harm us, but to show us his love and to draw us to himself and to see our need that we are unconscious and left dead. Ezekiel, write down Ezekiel 16 and read this on your own at some point, maybe this afternoon, tomorrow. When Jesus, or, you know, when the Lord looked down upon Israel, he tells this parable in the Old Testament of Israel being like a baby that's just laying in the dirt um, in its own blood and umbilical cord and it says, when I passed you by, I saw you struggling in your own blood, and I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I say to you in your blood, live. And then Israel goes out and, and violates the covenant, and God comes back at the end of the chapter, and he says, then he goes, I will establish my covenant with you that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame. Then I will provide you an atonement for all you have done. Jesus Christ is the atonement 
for all that we have done. Jesus Christ is our hero. Pastor Edward Killian says, everything is about Jesus or it's nihilism and death. Everything is about God who took flesh to rescue you in the most peculiar of ways. And the substance of this parable, as is the substance of the entirety of Scripture, is Jesus Christ. He himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the entire content of our faith, the beginning and the end and all things in between. And it's imperative in this story that as we so often uh, go about trying to justify ourselves, trying to make a case for why we are so good while we turn a blind eye to our own faults and our own sins and while we justify or, and, and while we uh, go about burning everyone else around us and laying everybody else to waste by what they've done wrong, it's important for us to remember that we were the man stripped and left for dead and Christ is the Savior. And it is him that we testify. It is not our greatness we proclaim, but the greatness of Jesus Christ. And then he, by his grace, puts us in a church to take care of one another. And that's another message, is why is the church so hard? <laughs> why is it so hard? You come to church, and uh, you come to get healing, and a lot of times sheep are biting each other, and we're beating each other up. <laughs> why is this so hard? Well, I'll just leave you with a little cliffhanger here. What do you get <laughs> when Jesus takes a bunch of broken, messed up, bleeding out people and throws them all together in the same organization? <laughs> you get a bunch of people who are sinners, who need to be loved by Christ and learn how to forgive each other. Learn how to love one another. Your neighbor, our neighbors are everywhere, but your neighbor is whoever you happen to run into on the road of life. And guess what? Your neighbors are right here in this room. This, these aren't all your neighbors, but there's a bunch of them here. And there's a bunch of people. This is a trauma center. <laughs> this is a literal trauma center. And so don't be surprised when people bleed on you. That's by design. And Christ loves you all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this <clears throat> parable. We know that parables are difficult. And, um, and there are, gosh, just so many interpretations of this one parable. Uh, but we thank you, Lord, that as we look at the whole scope of Scripture and we look at what you're doing through your servant Luke, we find hope for ourselves that even though we may many times be just like this lawyer and walking around in arrogance, thinking we've got all that, that you are faithful, that you didn't leave the lawyer by himself, but you ministered. And you ministered to your disciples in the process, and you ministered to us this morning. Lord, help us to see where we fit in this story and help us to see, Lord, how that you have come alongside us and, and loved us even though we were once enemies and that you sent your son to die on the cross. And, Lord, that he was raised from the dead and you give us power. And, and he hasn't just left us alone. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And there he is interceding for us, the right hand of the Father, even now. And he's our advocate 
even when we sin. And so we thank you, Lord, for the way that you have loved us and the way that you have brought us together into this thing called the church, this trauma center for sinners. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to love one another and help us to love not just the people in this room, help us to love people outside this room. Help us to love people by your grace, that you would more and more help us to love others as we love ourselves, and that we would not draw the circle tighter than you've drawn it, Lord, but we would let that be all that it is, realizing, Lord, that we cannot fulfill it in ourselves, but you can fill us to do for others what we could never do for them. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.